Uh-huh. I have somebody to match up with. And next week, I have another guy my age preaching on John 6. Y'all remember Heston. He'll be here next week. That's the plan. If anything happens, I'll figure something out. We'll, won't leave you hanging. Uh, I'm glad to be back. I've been gone for two weeks. And safe to say that I missed you a whole, whole bunch, especially last week. I won't go into that. You can ask me later about why that was, but I, I could tell you. Like I said, we'll be in John 4. But just kind of starting off a day like today, it's the Super Bowl, and everybody has an opinion on everything, right, nowadays. Uh, everybody's a critic. Everybody's got something to say about the president, about politics, about abortion, immigration, Israel, whatever it is, about artificial intelligence, technology boom, chat GPT. Y'all probably don't know what that is. Elon, <laughs> Elon Musk, electric vehicles. Day like today, everybody's got opinion on this whole Travis Kelsey Taylor Swift, who's going to win the Super Bowl? Does it even matter nowadays? I don't know. As human beings, though, we're all programmed to make judgments, and we're all programmed to make uh, opinions and to make assumptions and to establish our viewpoint as the facts. And this goes beyond you know, matters of governance or politics or technology or the ultra-famous or our favorite sport franchises. We all have opinions, and we all have judgments, and assumptions, and we have decisions on reality about absolutely everything in this world. We all have an opinion, and everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Is he God, or is he not God? Is he created, or is he uncreated? Is he, is he, is he, is he resurrected, or is he dead? Is he fact, or is he fiction? Everybody has something to say. As a church for 2,000 years, because we have had an opinion, and we established our viewpoint as fact, we've created catechisms and confessions. And those are big boogie words in the Church of Christ. But I promise you that those oftentimes, if they're in line with the Scripture, they're not a bad thing. But still, we've crafted things and we made these autobiographies about Jesus. The historians have written history, right? The philosophers have formalized philosophies. The scientists have theorized theories. Everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks they know the facts. But do they? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said something about building a biography about Jesus. Do you want to know who Jesus is? right? Let's stop looking at the biographies and let's start looking at the autobiography. How about that? If you want to know what he's about, if you want to know what he's said, if you want to know what his mission and his vision statement is, for lack of better terms, the best way is to look at these one-on-one -on -one encounters we see in the gospel. I think the best way, if you want to know who Jesus is, these one-on-one -on -one encounters he has with people, these face-to-face -face interactions, he makes it pretty clear. And he does it with all kinds of people. He does it with rich people and poor people. He does it with religious people, irreligious people. He meets pious people. He meets prodigal people. He meets liberals and legalists, potters and politicians alike, hungry people, and even haunted people. We looked a few weeks ago at Jesus with weary, tired people. I think you looked at ordinary fishermen, right? And Kyle looked last week about uh, a curious guy named Nicodemus. And this week I want to look about a woman, a thirsty woman at a certain well in Samaria. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of go through the context of the passage a little bit, and then I'm going to preach on it. And I'm going to give you, not my thoughts, hopefully what the Spirit has to say. We'll be in John chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 18. And it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, it was his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, and so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, who was tired as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. 
It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This was because his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews at this time did not have dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to even draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water you're talking about? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, can you give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water? Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right when you are saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is very true. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word, the word of God that you have given us and handed us down through hundreds of generations, that it may be preserved for just this moment in our lives, God, when we need it, and we need it every day. Uh, We pray this all in the name of our word, Jesus Christ. Amen give you a short time of devotion to the context of the passage because it's really important. When I say short time, a short amount of time explaining to you kind of the historical background of this, that doesn't mean it's not any less important just because I've given you a short amount of context. In fact, actually, if you know the context, if you know about the time and the place and the people of this passage, it actually will make much more sense to you what the main point of this passage is. So we have Jesus, he's wandering through the desert, or he's wandering through Judea, Israel, with his disciples, and he decides to go through Samaria. And some people say it was to cut down time because the Jews would avoid Samaria. They'd walk around. But really, as we know, he has another mission in mind, and it's crucial for us to understand that mission. So normally, like I said, the Jews would take this this trip around Samaria. They would try to avoid Samaria as best as they could. And this is because the Samaritans, this was another people group that lived north of the Jews, were kind of the arch rivals of the Jews, and here's why. To the Jews, they were animals. They were like dogs. They were pagans. They were half Jew and they were half Gentile. And this was because years before, a few hundred years before, when all of Israel had been conquered by Assyria, there was a certain remnant left in Israel who actually decided to mix and intermarry with the Assyrians, with the Gentiles. And so the Jews looked down upon them as pagan Gentiles as well. They even mixed the Jewish faith with the pagan faith, and it got really dirty and really became messy waters. And this is totally, really striking because this is a Jewish rabbi, Jesus. This is a Jewish rabbi, right? He comes into the land and he breaks this normal Jewish code of conduct, right? He reroutes his GPS, okay? And he comes to a certain town that's not excluded from his people's history. In fact, this town he's in, this well that he's at, is actually really important. This is a well dug by one of their forefathers, Jacob. And also, this is the same place where Abraham first arrived in Canaan. And this is actually the place where God made his covenant with Abraham, a very important covenant that still, well, exists today. So this is a very important place. And so I don't want to spoil it, 
But if you look back to Genesis where I'm making these connections, I want you to start connecting dots. And I'm not going to give you every little theological hint of what Genesis is talking about all the way to John 4, but I want you to know that God is very intentional when he is crafting history and when he was crafting the scriptures. And for just a moment as today, in John chapter 4, he wrote Genesis through Moses for a very important reason. So I'll just give you a little wink, wink, you know, just start connecting dots. And so Jesus is this Jewish teacher. He's, he's, and he's speaking to the Samaritan woman. Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, I want you to go ahead and throw up your red flags, okay? There's about three different ones that we'll kind of look at today. But the first one is that she's a pagan, right? She's a Samaritan woman. He's a traditional Orthodox Jew. And Samaritans and Jews weren't even supposed to look at each other funny, all right? You'd mess up. Number two is she's a woman. He's a man. And at this time in history, it would be disgraceful for a man to talk to a woman in public and vice versa. Third, He's a teacher. She's a nobody. He's educated. She's uneducated. And so there's a difference in social class, too, that, that Jesus is kind of bridging a gap over. He's reaching over to her. And so there's probably also a hundred other barriers that we don't have time to get into. But we just understand that Jesus is actually breaking rules. He's breaking man-made traditions. He's, making, he's breaking man-made rules. And he's reaching to a societal outcast, someone who's on the fringe of society, even in our own society, She's on the outside, and he's reaching to her. And he's saying, I'm bringing you something. And what's funny is he asks her for something, but really when he's asking her for something is to imply that he's there to give her something. And he's telling, he's tearing down a current religious establishment, and he's saying something about neglected people, and he's saying something about the prodigal sons of the world. And Jesus has a message, and I want to communicate that message to you. It's about water, really simple. It's about thirst, really simple, but it's actually a matter of heaven and hell, and it's a matter of life and death that we have to, be, have to know about. And so there's three things to look about thirst for, or three things to look at about thirst, because Jesus is with the thirsty. The first thing is the universality of thirst. That's a mouthful. The second thing is the difficulty of thirst, and the third thing is the remedy of thirst. The universality, the difficulty, and the remedy. So why do I use this word universality? So what does universal mean? It means to include pretty much all people, or it means to include people from every group in the world. And so the university of thirst means the universality of thirst, the universalness of thirst essentially means what I'm trying to say to you is that everybody's thirsty. Okay. Put it simply. I'm trying to say that all people, regardless of their constraints or the divisions or social class or culture or race, all people are thirsty. And literally all people do get thirsty, right? We're human beings. You say you go after, you go on a run, you're thirsty afterwards. You, you work in the heat, you're thirsty. When you wake up, you know when you wake up in the middle of the night and you're just so parched, you just drink a gallon of water? Right. Everybody does that. Everybody has those moments. So everybody can get naturally thirsty. And this includes the Samaritan woman. So she comes out at high noon in the heat after laboring. But what Jesus knows about her is she needs something more than just a physical thirst to be quenched. Jesus' conversation is about something much deeper if you read the text. And Jesus, what he's talking about is he's talking about the soul. He's talking about the inward parts of a person. He's talking about the deepest parts of a person, a person's heart. He's talking about the greatest needs of humanity. All people in this world, I want you to understand this, every single person in this world has a thirst. And every single person in this world has a soul thirst. Everybody has an unquenchable thirst 
within themselves. And all people are searching for some kind of satisfaction. They're searching for a hope in life. They're searching for a joy in life. And they're searching for some kind of God, whether they know it or not. And people innately, they innately within themselves want to stake their soul in something or they want to stake their soul in someone outside of themselves. And that's actually goes back to Genesis. That's actually how we were created. You have an unquenchable thirst because God created you with one in the garden. He created Adam and Eve to have an unquenchable thirst. He put a man and a woman into the world for a reason. You know, God put them in the world to work, sure. God put them in the world to procreate, sure, to to, to pet the farm animals, okay. But Adam and Eve, and by nature, all of us were actually made to search and to find. We were made with a deep, mysterious hunger and thirst of the soul, and originally we had it. We had the thirst quenched. We all have a natural desire to find fulfillment and satisfaction, to find that abundance in life, to find approval, justification, life, love, happiness, whatever term you want to throw on it, everybody is crafted in the image of God and therefore is crafted with an innate thirst. And he told Adam and Eve to do what? Eat of the tree of life. And I believe there is a literal tree of life, but I think it meant something much more big. It meant something metaphorical as well. What the tree of life represented in the garden was that Adam and Eve would only eat from it and they would only eat from God. God was the quench, I don't, the thirst quencher, I guess. He was the hunger satisfier for them in the garden. Man and woman, together with God, were in perfect communion at one time, and they never had a need. And that satisfaction was filled. They had that fulfillment. They had no hunger. They had no thirst because God had done it for them, okay? And so everybody is thirsty. And everybody has a soul thirst, and everybody has a faith staked into something. There's not one person in this world who does not have a faith, just like there's no person in this world who does not thirst. And people ask, this is a good question to ask if you want to know what you're, what you're thirsting after. Uh, this is important in the business realm. These are questions that you will be asked in a job interview, for example. You know, what is it that gets you up in the morning, right? What do you really live for? What's your greatest love? What's your greatest desire in life? And the answer to questions like that, the deep answer, the one in your heart of hearts, is to answer, it is the answer to what you are drinking to quench your thirst, okay? Look around. You step outside of this this church building with all these pews and stuff, with all these ordinary good church folk, you will notice very quickly that everybody is chasing something, that everybody is pursuing something. Anybody who's not chasing or pursuing is dead, all right? Everybody who's got a breath in their lungs is chasing after something. Some people, it's education. I'm surrounded by 60,000 college students on a regular daily basis. They're searching for something, okay? Some people, it's a career. Some people, it's an income source. Some people, it's that merit achievement, that reputation of, that they have to build up for themselves. They need the world's approval. Some people, uh, it's normal, nice things, American dream things like comfort and safety, you know, a nice house, a nice car, a quiet neighborhood. Some people, great, wonderful things we're chasing after. And we're thirsting after our own kids or our wives, our spouses, our earthly relationships. Some people, it's religion, it's knowledge, it's science, it's practically anything. It's sex, it's pleasure, it's power, it's control or escape. Everybody is searching and longing for something. Everybody is drinking from a certain well is what I want you to know. Everybody's looking, everybody's longing, everybody is going to a well, and everybody is drawing water because everybody is thirsty. So thirst is universal. Everybody has one, right? What's the difficulty of thirst? What happens when you cannot quench a thirst? 
I'm talking literally too. What happens when you don't have water? You get dehydrated. What happens when you get too dehydrated? Start falling apart, right? <laughs> I want you, I want you to imagine you're in the, the Sahara, Sahara, the Sahara. I don't know how you pronounce it. Sahara Desert? Okay, whatever. Imagine you're in the hottest desert in the world, right? And you're so thirsty and you're dehydrated and you have no water. Do you know what the process looks like within your body? Okay? Go by three days. Here's what starts to happen. It's really awful. It's really slow and it's really excruciating. See, without, your, without water, your body begins to scream inside. It's like it starts to scream. It's thirsting, like super thirsting. And your tongue begins to swell to where you can't even swallow. And your throat begins to feel like it's hot on fire, okay? And you're just burning there in the sun as it is. So it's total torture. And so when you're thirsty, though, when you're at that point in your life, you will run to almost any water source. You will drink almost anything. You will believe anything can satisfy that thirst. Uh, there's a good movie that came out about 10 years ago. It's called uh, Life of Pi. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Really cool movie. It's about this guy who gets kind of shipwrecked and he lands up on this lifeboat and he's on this lifeboat with this, this lion. But believe it or not, his greatest enemy is not the lion or the, or the tiger. My bad. Oh, big cat, whatever. Feline. Anyway, his, 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 his greatest enemy, his greatest threat is not that tiger. All right? It's actually everything around him. This is what's really strange. You see, he's hungry, but there's fish all in the sea. He's thirsty, but what surrounds him? A body of water, an entire sea. What's the problem, though? What's the catch? It's an ocean. That's obvious, right? But what kind of water is it? Salt water. But because he has this innate, deep, very thirsty body, that is so great and powerful, what's he going to be tempted to do? To drink it anyways. What would that do to him? It would be the same as drinking cyanide. And actually, it would probably kill him quicker than if he, had a, if he were to drink a real cup of water, okay? It's counterfeit water. I like to call it a saltwater deceit. It deceives you in thinking, yes, you can drink this. You can have it. It'll satisfy. But what happens? That impure water will kill you. And so what is Jesus saying about the problem and the conflict and the difficulty of your thirst? First, he is saying your soul is not much different from your mouth, believe it or not. That innate heart of hearts thing inside of you, that deepness that's not totally tangible or physical, that drives every action and every word that, that comes out of your mouth, that deep longing, there's a problem to it. And he says the soul, just like the body, except it. It's not just like body. It actually has a deeper, greater cry than your own body can make when you're thirsty. So what's our real issue? The real issue, the difficulty of thirst, is that we would run to every other water source before we would run to clear, clean, pure water. That's the issue. We are deceived into drinking the salt water. We're deceived into drinking poison. We thirst and we drink from the well of wealth, of love, of sex, of reputation, of drugs, of alcohol, whatever it is, approval, personal achievement, your own thinking that you're a good person. You're like, I'm just trying to build up this identity about me that so everybody else and that God can even think that I'm a good, good guy, okay? Even that well. I'll go to another quick example. The 2008 Great Recession. I was six years old, so I don't really remember this. I just remember we were really poor at this time. That's about all I know. But, but uh, I was reading in a book about this, and this guy used this example to help kind of tie this to this certain theme. And so what happened is this was pretty much the most significant financial meltdown since the Great Depression. What happened? 
the economy collapsed, sort of. Not as great as the Great Depression, but it still collapsed. The housing market collapsed, banks were collapsing, and the stock market skyrocketed downwards. And the world suffered a huge financial crisis, and it affected everybody. It probably affected your business, probably affected all of y'all's businesses. That's what happened. One example of the difficulty of thirst is this, is that we will stake our lives on anything we ultimately think we can control, but we actually cannot control. And so what happened in this certain situation is there was a bunch of businessmen, there was a bunch of CEOs and banking executives and Wall Street gurus who staked their entire existence on things they thought they control, including the world economy. But the world economy is not very controllable. All right? And what happens is this. They get dehydrated when things go wrong. And they drink the salt water. And what do I mean? Yeah, they lost jobs. They suffered severe reputational damage, and they were left sleepless at night. That's normal. But inside, so many were at total loss in their souls. Their insides suffered severe damage, and their very livelihood was left sleepless. Because money, a career, or a reputation, or the simple thrill of stock trading, which any of us could have, that was their ultimate joy, that was their ultimate satisfaction, that was their idol, that was their god. Do you know what happened? Research says about 5,000 of them killed themselves within the next year because they staked their lives on something that would only end up killing them. It happened literally. You will kill yourself if you make money your well of living water. Wealth, career success. We all look at drugs and alcohol and say, that will literally kill you. Well, anything else will too. Maybe not physically, but it will kill your soul is what I'm trying to get at. Even if you make kids, if you make your own spouse, if you make your own family, if you make comfort and leisure and pleasure, naturally good things God wants to bless you with. If you make it an ultimate, if you make it God himself, it'll destroy you and it'll poison you. It's a dirty, nasty well. And Jesus is telling this woman that, all right? That's what Jesus is telling this woman. He's not telling her this verbatim, but he is doing it in essence. She's drank from a poisoned water supply, but he offers her an alternative. And you start to read the story. She starts to get interested. Jesus is an interest provoker. He starts to get people thinking and, and really, truly searching. And there comes to this point where the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, is that you've had five husbands, and the man that you are sleeping with right now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. <laughs> Just a way, that's quite true. Do you know what Jesus has done, though? He's drawn her in, he's got her interested, and she starts asking for the living water. But Jesus does something more because there's one more step we have to go through in order to make this person, this Samaritan woman, realize what she truly cannot live without. He says, call your husband. And he says, oh, wait, you've had five, and now you're a prostitute. That's a, in essence what he says. And we think that's really judgmental and condemning. He didn't condemn at all. He just convicted her. He just, he just told her what was the reality of her life. That's all he did. And she's convicted inside, okay? What Jesus has done is he's reached into her heart. The word of God is powerful, right? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Jesus plunges a sword into her heart. He rips it out. He says, this is what it looks like because you've been drinking from the salt water. You've been drinking from the wrong well. He's revealed her idol, her idol, her God, her ultimate. 
I got a lot of influence for this sermon from a book I read. It's called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. It's fascinating. Really good book. And there's this quote in here, and he asks the question, what is an idol? He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is something so sensual and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passion and energy on it. You spend your emotional and financial resources on it, and you do that without a second thought. Sometimes it could be a family. It could be children, a career, or making money, or achievement, or critical acclaim, or social standing. It could be a romantic relationship, or peer approval, competence, and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in a Christian ministry which means I need to listen up. And so when your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we call it codependency, but really it is idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your deepest parts, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning and I'll know that I'll have value and then I'll feel significant and I'll feel secure. What's the idol for the Samaritan woman? Jesus says, Love, men, sex, that's hers. But it's more than that. That's really surface level on the top of the, of the broken well, of the broken water source, okay? What's deeper than that? It's an overwhelming thirst to be recognized and accepted and appreciated and adored, seen as significant, given worth, given identity, and given life. Who's supposed to do those things for you? Who's supposed to give you approval and satisfaction in life? It's God. So what he has done is he used the law to convict her. He's not condemning her. He's convicting her. He makes her sin known. He helps her see the poison she's been drinking her whole life, that sin, that rebellion against God. She's turned from one who was supposed to be her husband in a very spiritual sense to turn to another one in a very physical sense. All right? And it's become her slave master. That's why she's been through five different men. Okay? And she's drinking that well all the way into hell itself. So she knows she's utterly hopeless. Jesus pointed that out. She's broken, but because she's broken, she's very, very ready. She knows the well that she's been drinking from is not working, and so she'll go to the one last alternative that she has. So just to transition into our last point, there's a universality and there's a difficulty of thirst. The universality of thirst is that everybody thirsts, everybody craves. The difficulty of thirst is that everyone continues to thirst because they just doesn't do it for them, okay? Everybody seeks for a God, but is never satisfied by that other God. All search for an ultimate thing in their life, and that ultimate thing fails, and everybody drinks from a well, and every single well that they drink from is poisoned. And you have to ask, why does everything else never work? Why is the well that the heart drinks from, why does it never satisfy why does it only poison? Why does it only make you more empty than you've ever been before? In the book of Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah exactly why. He tells Jeremiah precisely why the entire nation of Israel is feeling this way. Why they can never catch a break. Why they can never quench their first. Why they can never defeat their enemies on the battlefield. Why they can never get back to what they once had. And God says this in Jeremiah 2, and he compares Israel to a woman, to a harlot, to a prostitute who has cheated on him. 
which was supposed to be the woman's first love. And God says this. He says, my people have committed two sins. He said, really, I could sum up all your rebellion in this. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, meaning wells. They've, broken, they've dug broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They abandoned the one good, satisfactory, thirst-quenching, eternity-giving well. And what did they do it in exchange for? Broken wells, empty wells, man-made wells, broken gods, empty gods, man-made gods, counterfeit gods, cheap gods, lead you off a cliff kind of gods. And you think here, why could Israel be so foolish? This entire nation, God's given them everything. God's given them the promised land. He's delivered them from their enemies so many times. And they, why do they keep going back to the bad water source? And we say that, but we're still guilty too, I think, right? Every day you probably run to something else. You start feeling down and downcast and you start running, well, I think this will do it for me. This will do it for me. This will make me feel better. And you'll never run to God. So you're just as guilty as, in fact, all of humanity is because you've done it yourself. You see, there's no, it's no wonder we're all called sheep because we're running after something else. And it's no wonder we stray. And it's no wonder the world around us is always collapsing. The world is collapsing around us because we've been drinking poison since Genesis chapter 3. That's what's been happening. Innately, each and every one of us was created in God's image. And what this means is that you were created with a longing thirst, a deep heart hunger. You were created to place your life's being into something other than yourself, something greater than yourselves. And in the beginning of time, in the garden of God, humanity's thirst was quenched and humanity's heart was absolutely satisfied. But the first woman and the first man didn't take long before they got the idea and they were deceived into the illusion that something else other than God could give them what the Creator could only give. And they drank another well. They ate from another tree. And ever since, that's been the greatest world problem. Okay? That's the difficulty of the universality of thirst. But here's the remedy. Number three, what is the remedy to the difficulty of the universality of thirst? What a mouthful. You see, the same creator that we abandoned for other gods, for other created things, and the same husband we traded away for another, the one true life-giving God that we left completely behind did not abandon or leave or trade us away. That's the beauty of it all. It's quite the opposite, actually. Here comes this guy into the world. He enters himself into the world as one of us, and he eats, and he drinks, and he laughs, and he cries with us, and he walks through a dry and barren, thirsty land, and he sits at the same well he made a covenant at 2,000 years earlier. The same God comes back to the well to reestablish that covenant and say, this is the meaning of this covenant. And he asks who for a drink? A prostitute. Hey, can you give me a drink? What he's just done is he's broken every social and racial religious wall to bits because that's what he does. A Jew with a Samaritan, the religious with the irreligious, a priest with a prostitute, a man with a woman, name it whatever you want to name it, but it's nothing compared to this. This is the God of the cosmos who comes and sits down with the lowest of the sinners. That's incredible. Buddha never did that. Muhammad doesn't do that. Allah doesn't do that. Yahweh does that. And he comes right here in this moment. He does just that. That's Christianity, and that's precisely what Jesus tells the woman at the well. Because what happens in verse 26 and 27, it says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all of these things. He'll answer all life's problems. He'll give us the satisfaction. He'll quench our thirst. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you right now, I am he. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the God of the cosmos. And I'm talking to you right now. That's what he says. And so the true universality of thirst that I want you to understand, because Jesus breaks all these barriers, because he comes with a sledgehammer. It's like the FBI that comes in and barges into a, some guy's house, breaks it down, breaks the siege wall down. He comes in. He says, I'm here. What he does is he's saying, this is utterly inclusive. He said, the true universalness of my salvation is that it's totally inclusive. He says, I want everybody. What's the difficulty? It's that it's also totally exclusive. He says, you can't drink from any well you want. You can only drink from one well, and that's me, okay? That's the truth. That's why Jesus says, I am the living water. That's what he says in this passage. I am the living water. He said, the well's not even something I give you. He says, the well is something that I am, and you have to come here. And therefore, you have to know the true remedy of thirst. The true remedy of thirst. How do we remedy our thirst? How do we remedy our thirst? Well, if you can't tell if that's how you're trying, if that's the question you're trying to answer, how can I remedy my thirst? You'll be where the rest of the world is right now. How can I do it? God does it. The true question of true remedy is how did God remedy our thirst? How did God fix our problem? Like I said at the start, Thousands of world philosophies, thousands of world religions are devoted to this idea of how do we make humanity better? How do we fix our problems? How do we find satisfaction? How do we find the abundant life? How do we make the world into a utopia? All of that business, all of that nonsense. How do we fix our sins? And only one, which is Christianity, says how God actually did it himself for us. We know he comes to us. We know he eats and he talks and he drinks and he sleeps with us. And he comes in with a sledgehammer and he breaks the wall down and he comes right in and he sits with us. But what else? One word and that word's gospel. The gospel tells you exactly how Jesus remedied our thirst. And the gospel tells you how he gave you the good stuff, the good water, the stuff that made you go, that's it. I got it. It's his death and it's his burial and his resurrection. I'll tell you what happens. This is fascinating. On the cross, Jesus Christ is absolutely thirsty, physically, sure. Eternally thirsty, too. Because in his last moment, the God of the universe said, I thirst. One of his last few words he says is, I thirst. He wasn't talking about his actual mouth. He wasn't talking about his bodily thirst. He was talking about a deep, spiritual, eternal thirst. Not because he did not have a cup to drink from, but because he did drink from a certain cup. Because in the garden the night before, Jesus agonized. He said, let this cup pass from me, this cup of water, whatever it is. But that cup didn't pass from him. Instead, he drank it in full. That cup was the cup of curse, of sin, and of punishment. And he drank the poison for us. And he drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And he drank the cup of death for us that you could have the cup of living water that he had to give from his spring, from his well. And after he dies, the soldiers take a spear and they plunge it into his side. And what flows from it? Blood and what? Water. For a reason. And the reason is this. is because he's trying to say that the living water flows from the fountain of his death. The spring of living water was on a hill. It was on a cross. And that's what he's trying to tell the woman in essence. And that's the fountain that you and I can drink from. It's blood. It's himself. It's Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. We know all this. Okay. But I'm telling you, it's the only thing that
that you can stake your faith in and stake your, your, your soul thirst and your soul hunger in, and it will actually satisfy. It's the only thing that can do it. And it's the only one that can give you life after death. That's guaranteed. And his promise is this. If you'll never thirst for anything else, if you come to me, you will never have to search in vain for something else to satisfy. It will be me and it will be me alone. And that's what's beautiful about it because it's all these wonderful things that we have in the world. Most of them are actually good things that we make gods and we make idols. And the beautiful thing is that when we actually make God our true God, we make Yahweh our God, everything else actually starts to satisfy. The food you eat starts to taste better. You start to be thankful for it because you know who gave it to you. The money you receive, it starts to actually satisfy because you know who gave it to you and you know who wants to use it for you for a certain purpose. All these things start to come together. When you put the horse back in front of the wagon, things actually start to get moving. Things actually become right. Jesus said, walk in abundant life. He meant it right now. If you go to the one true well, it works. In Revelation, in chapter 7, verse 16, this is what God says about the saints. He says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst, and the sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. That sounds like the passage we've been reading. The Samaritan woman knew this all too well, pun intended, after one encounter with the Christ. And for the rest of us, you will notice in the Bible this specific message. The living water is not just personal. Once we get it, it's not just personal. It's totally communal. There's a reason when we're about to do what we're about to do is for a reason. When Charlie gives communion thoughts, there's a reason why. You share it. The fountain that you have, Jesus says, is actually built within you. He says, indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What does he mean by become in them? Look in the Old Testament. You'll look in the Gospels. You'll look in the Epistles. And you look at the end of Revelation. You'll know exactly what this means. In short, though, Jesus says the fountain floods. It cannot contain itself. It's like a giant oil mine that spurts out of the ground. It does not stop. It cannot be stopped. You can't control it. Just ask the woman. I want to tell you that living water, part of that is the Holy Spirit. And the woman got it. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have heard for ourselves. We have heard for ourselves. We have authenticated. We know this is true. We have tasted and seen. And we know that this man really is the savior of the world, just like you have said. She went to the well, the prostitute, the adulterer, the outcast, but that's not what she is anymore. She's a spring of living water. She runs into the town. She says, look what I got. I don't know if you've seen The Chosen. Displays it pretty well in that TV show. She can't contain it. She's like, you won't believe who I just met. She says, you got to meet him. Jesus says, that's the fountain of living water, and it's coming out of you, and you can't control it. That's what he says. And for those who drink that living water, it only gets better, infinitely better, exponentially better, eternally better. Everyone has a thirst. Everybody fails to quench it, but there's only one who can fulfill it. Don't be fooled into believing anything else. Don't drink the poison. Don't go to another ultimate. Don't go back to a counterfeit God because I'm telling you right now, it won't satisfy. It'll give you death. The wages of sin is death. God really means it. He means in this life and he means in the next. It will give you death.
So I beg and pray that if you don't have the living water, that you'd receive it. I think it's funny that we have a certain sacrament, sacrament, a certain practice that God gave us. It sits right back here and he says, you don't just drink it, you get in it. That's what he says. I want you to know that. In with this scripture. This is the very end of the Bible. It's just like the very beginning of the Bible. It's just like the very middle of the Bible. It's Revelation 22, verse 17. I'll say this and then I'm going to pray. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty say, come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, all honor and glory be to you, the only wise God. We thank you that you satisfy our deepest thirst, our eternal thirst, and that we have all that we need, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that he would climb a tree as his throne, that he'd hold scepters in his hands. It's called the nails that were driven through his wrists. And Lord, he would, he would thirst for us so that we would not thirst, God, that he would take your wrath and he would take the punishment and he'd pay the debt that we could not pay so that we could live with you now in perfect peace and in eternity in perfect peace, God. Thank you for this gift and uh, make us a fountain. <laughs> We're not here just to do this in this moment just for ourselves, God. The pew is great. The pulpit's great. But you say this is just halftime. We got to get back into the game. And so make us a fountain of living water that spreads to everybody we interact with at work, at school, anywhere, any moment, whatever will we do. Let's do this in Jesus' name. Amen.